0: If you look at the first four verses of, of uh, Romans chapter 6 this morning, if you don't have a Bible, the passage will be on the screen in, in just a minute. Uh, in 1972, Robert Redford starred in a movie called The Candidate, uh, in which he played a political neophyte, a, a, a completely inexperienced uh, politician. He had The only experience he had was his father was a governor. Uh, he had never run for public office. And he plays a, ca- a guy named Bill McKay, who his party puts up in a California senatorial election as a candidate because they know they're going to lose and they just need somebody who looks nice and won't make too many mistakes, and, and but it won't waste uh, an up-and-coming candidate who has some real potential. And, and the movie, as it unfolds, M- McKay is told what to say and how to say it. Uh, and, and all of the focus of the movie, all if you've seen it, all the concentration in the movie is to get him through the campaign ...without being, you know, just absolutely completely embarrassed. There's no thought given to the fact that he might actually win the election. And at the end of the movie, what happens is McKay actually does win the election... And in the very final scene of the movie, he's standing uh, behind a closed door with uh, the, the guy who's been his handler the entire time. The guy who's told him what to say and how to say it and when to look a certain way and when to act a certain way. And, and now they've won this election. And Redford's character, McKay, uh, looks at his handler. Uh, as they're about to open the door, and outside, there, there's hundreds of uh, photographers and and uh, and reporters to, to get the story of this amazing upset. And he looks at his hand and he says, Marvin, what do we do now? <laughs> All of their concentration had been on the campaign. No thought had been given to what do we do if we actually have some success? In the Christian community, we place a tremendous amount of emphasis, and rightly so. Don't hear me saying something. I'm not. In people coming to Christ for salvation. The scriptures are very clear. There's no other name given under heaven besides the name of Jesus, whereby men and women, boys and girls must be saved. Salvation is is the most paramount, most crucial decision you will make in your life. What what you decide about Jesus? Is he Savior and Lord? Or was he just some you know kind of obscure historical person who was a nice guy but doesn't really have any bearing on modern life. That is the most important decision in your life. But sometimes I believe the church, I believe we're guilty of not really having a clue on what do we do now. People come to Christ for salvation, and there's a life then to be lived. What, what does that look like? Well, in Romans, the first five chapters, which Jeremy uh, very uh, ably concluded last Sunday, uh, the first five chapters really concentrate on the kind of the theological foundation, the teaching about God's righteousness, that, that man is separated from God, that man has broken God's law, that man has rebelled, that, that he stands under God's rightful condemnation, that we, that we uh, are guilty of the crime. And then it also looks at God's reaction to our sin. It looks at our relationship, our broken relationship And it shows how God, through Christ and his mercy, put that together. And the righteousness of God is is God's justice and God's mercy coming together so that we can have salvation. So in the first five chapters, Paul lays this theological foundation, this emphasis on coming to Christ for salvation. The apex of which you guys looked at last Sunday with Pastor Jeremy, if you were here, in chapter 5. Where Paul says this, now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, the law came to really show us the perfect character of God and and really how, how badly we were sinning. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says... Where where the sin really kept us in shackles, kept us in bondage, Uh, as it continued to increase, we looked at the law and we saw, boy, we're in in bigger trouble than we think. It says grace abounded more. The the term there in Jeremy uh, rightly articulated it last Sunday, grace superabounded. So the more you see how much you need a Savior, the more the Savior shows himself to be more than you could ever need. And to come to him is to come to eternal life. But we must ask the question, what do we do now? And that's where Romans 6 begins to turn a corner. And in theological terms, we go from our justification, being made right with God, to the process of sanctification, being being changed from the inside out so that the way in which we think The decisions that we make, the priorities we set, the the, the behaviors of our lives begin to reflect and model this new eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus. So this morning we're going to begin to answer the question that Bill McKay asked Marvin, what do we do now? We're going to do that by studying Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, what shall we say then? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we have uh, worshipped you with our voices this morning, we have sung of your praise. Lord Jesus, our hearts have been turned again to, uh, to your cross, to your redemption, to your faithfulness in providing salvation for lost and broken sinners like us. We, we sing that our Redeemer lives that you are not in a grave somewhere, an obscure, distant corner of Palestine, but that a person who had been crucified and was physically dead got up out of a grave three days later, and by his victory over death, sealed redemption for those of us who have been enslaved to sin and in bondage to death. We have sung of your glory. Your majesty, we said, here, here I am to worship, to bow down, to say that you're my God. And then, Father, we have sung that, that you would take our lives, you take our hands, our feet, our thoughts, our actions, our, our finances, that you would, you would use us to the glory of Jesus. So, Father, whether we were actually paying attention to what we were singing or kind of going through, the, going through the motions, or whether we didn't really understand the words, perhaps, we haven't been to church before, this is a new experience for us, and we're not sure what all of that means. Father, I thank you that you know us. And that you are here and you're present through your word and your Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. Father, I thank you that, that this worship service does not rest on the planning or the, or the words or the, or the thoughts of man. But it is your worship and your spirit is present. So Lord, as we ask this question, what do we do now? We pray that, that you would teach us. Lord, my words are so inconsequential, they just absolutely do not matter. We hear the words of man all week long. We hear the philosophies, the opinions, the the theories. Now, Father, we come to sit under your truth. Lord, don't let me botch it. Don't let me say things that ought not be said. Forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of anybody in this room hearing your truth this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we're gonna we're gonna look at what Paul says in this passage about where we kind of where we go now, and I think there are three uh, main thrusts to uh, to the passage, and then there's several kind of subpoints which we'll get into as we go along. Uh, the first one is, is the briefest, but it's but it's. Uh, I don't know that it's most painfully obvious in what he's saying, but it's probably uh, very important that he start here in order to uh, debunk a negative idea, in order to say we're we're going to uh, avoid the absurd. And so the first thing we do and where we go from here is that we don't abuse the gospel of grace. Paul says in the first verse, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers the question, "By, by no means. Now, Paul's referring back to, and part of the reason why I put verses 20 and 21 uh, on the board there, Paul's referring to uh, a false teaching that goes something along the lines of this. Okay, God wants to be extraordinarily magnanimous through the cross of Christ by forgiving sins. God wants to be known as the God who saves, the Redeemer, the one who is gracious, uh, and as i look at the law i see more and more of my sins but but god in his in his graciousness and his compassion is going to forgive all of those sins in christ well i could actually really help god do a phenomenal job by sinning even more and more and more because the more that i sin the more god will look good right I can actually help God. So, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, put my faith in Christ. I'm going to say I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I'm going to set out to prove that by, by committing every sin I can possibly think of. And that will really make God look great. And Paul rightly says, should we continue in sin? Should we, should we try to sin? Should we thrive in sinning, purposely sinning, in order that God's grace may abound even more? And he says, that's absurd. That's absolute nonsense. We don't use those terms very often anymore because they're not quite politically correct to say that somebody's idea is nonsense, but Paul calls it like it is. He says that is the height of foolishness. That is an abuse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 5.13, he spells it out even more. He says, you who are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or an opportunity to sin, but through love serve one another. Where do, we, where do we go from here? What do we do now? We do not abuse the gospel of grace. We do not use it, the forgiveness of God as a license to sin. If your thought goes along those lines, Jesus died for my sins, so now I can live any way I want to, I would tell you that, that intellectually you, you're saying the right words, but you haven't understood the first part of the equation because the first part of the equation never leaves, leads to that conclusion. I was having breakfast with uh, a friend of mine years ago, a long time ago, and he was in the process of uh, being involved in an extramarital affair and uh, divorcing his wife, leaving his family. And he said to me as we sat there at breakfast, and I asked him about his conscience, and I asked him about what, how did he connect this with being, uh, as he claimed, a believer in Jesus. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Tom, God has to forgive me. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but God has to forgive me because Jesus died for my sin. And at which point in the Schneidhorse restaurant in Frontenac, I said, Brother, you are standing on the precipice of hell itself. You cannot abuse the gospel. You don't know Jesus. His grace is never intended for you to go on sinning put it in a lighter note. It's kind of like giving your kid a whole bunch of money for spring break and to have them spend some of that money on buying a fake ID so they can go out and and, uh, misbehave. Not that that's ever happened to anybody I know. But you get the point. We do not abuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. But secondly, what do we do now? Paul says we embrace our death. In verse, the second half of verse 2 and verse 3, he says, How can we, how can those of us who, who, who claim to be followers of Jesus, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, five different times in chapter 5, Paul talks about the death of Jesus. Thirteen times in chapter 6, Paul talks about the death of of believers. He talks about us as those who have died, those who have been baptized into his death. So that is a word that we're going to be hearing this Sunday, next Sunday, and then we'll we'll take Easter off from Romans, and then we'll come back the Sunday after. We'll be in in this chapter for, uh, for three weeks. We will see this phrase over and over again. So I've highlighted there because I want you to be aware of it and paying attention to it, not only as we study on Sunday mornings, but as you read the scripture throughout the week. Paul is saying this, our faith in Christ kills sin. It it debilitates sin. We have died to sin. Now, what does that mean in a practical level? Well, this is where I'm going to get into a bit of a sub-point here. And let me break it down for you for just a minute. What does it mean that we embrace our death? What does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, first of all, sin is no longer our identity. We talked about this about four sermons ago, where in chapter 5, Paul writes, while we were still sinners, while we were still those people who were not living up, to to God's standard, while we were still falling short. And he, he identifies us as sinners. He doesn't say while we were sinning. He says while we were sinners. That's our name. I'm Tom the sinner. And while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Well, because I have died to sin, it's no longer my identity. Do I still sin from time to time? Yes, I do. But it no longer defines who I am. Secondly, How do we embrace our death? How do we die to sin? Sin no longer is our condemnation. This is a verse that that Jeremy's read the last three weeks in chapter 5. The judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. Sin is no longer our condemnation. We are not under the judgment of sin because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. If you're a disciple of Jesus... If you're a believer in Jesus, if you, if you persevere in faith throughout your life, you're not going to stand before heaven and God change the rules all of a sudden and say, well, now you really are condemned because you made some mistakes along the way. We'll see in chapter 8, verse 1, probably the most beautiful verse in all of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to die to sin means that we're no longer under the condemnation. And then thirdly, a verse we'll get to in a couple weeks, sin no longer is our master. And Paul uses this idea of enslavement. And he says, you who were once slaves to sin, but we are that no longer. So as we embrace our death, it is a death by association paul says we were baptized into his death and you get the image of the of the of the first century churches and baptism services of which maybe you've been a part of before where someone comes to christ and they weren't baptized as an infant and they and they're immersed and they're baptized and and, and they're taken down under the water and brought back up uh, and in fact we're going to have a baptism service in late august which we're going to talk about uh, as the year unfolds i'm not going to get into that to that quite yet this morning but what we're saying is we're associating with Christ in his death. We are going down to the grave, so to speak. It is death by association. You see, Jesus took my identity. He took our identity. Tom the sinner, put your name in there. He, he took our identity. And when he went to the cross, he suffered the wrath of God for my sin because he had become sin. And my faith in Christ means that I embrace Jesus as my substitute. I understand that he has paid the penalty that I deserve. Through Jesus, the sin-filled, wretched, evil Tom died on the cross. If you remember, and we'll bring it to memory again uh, on Good Friday and during Holy Week, uh, Jesus cries out his greatest agony, on the cross when he screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and theologians we, and pastors, we say at that moment, Jesus is experiencing hell because the father, who's been in perfect relationship face to face with the son, turned his back on the son and would not look at him because of the sin that had, that had, that had been placed upon him. Completely technically speaking, that's not an accurate statement. The Father never turned his back on the Son. He turned his back on you and me. He saw our faces on the cross. He saw my lust. He saw your angry outbursts. He saw our thieving. He saw the gossip in which we participated on the way to church this morning. He saw our wretchedness for what it was and what it is, and he turned his back on us as Christ became sin. And faith embraces that truth that Jesus suffered hell on my behalf and suffered hell on behalf of all who place their faith in him. And therefore, our sinful identity, our condemnation, our enslavement to sin died at that very moment and we now live in him. So we embrace our death. Uh, or as a uh, modern-day theologian said, I'm going to put his quote on the board. James Edwards writes this as he's thinking about these verses, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thought. In Christ's death, something has happened to believers. Not just four believers, but two believers. When Christ died for sinners, sinners died in God's sight. Since Christ has broken the claim of sin over our existence, sin no longer determines our existence. Christians are like citizens liberated from a long and oppressive dictatorship. I think it's a a beautiful description of what happened here. I'm going to pause for a minute. We're going to have a history pop quiz, okay? Anybody know what happened on August 25th of 1944? Anybody? Scott Holly in here? Scott would probably probably know if he's here. Anybody know? Any? Nope, not the bomb. That was in August of uh, 45. Anybody know August 25th, 44? Paris was liberated. The Allies rolled into Paris. And I went back in my some of my history books and I pulled out a picture uh, to demonstrate that celebration. And you probably can't see it if you're too far back and it doesn't necessarily do it justice, but the euphoria... On the faces of these people as they're being liberated from over four and a half years of Nazi dictatorship and brutal oppression. And, and the Apostle Paul says when we, when we celebrate our death, when we embrace our death through Christ, we are like people who have been liberated from the worst oppression in the history of the world. And so rightly so, we rejoice and we give thanks because we in Christ have died to sin. So how do we embrace our death? What, is that, what does that look like? How do we, how do we rejoice in that? What, is that uh, what does that mean in my life? Well, it means that, that I no longer need to defend myself. It means I no longer need to, to stand up for myself and, and, and say, wait a minute, you know, you didn't understand that wasn't really sin. It was really, you, you just misunderstood and, and defend my wrong actions. I can die to that. I don't have to to live in self-justification anymore. I don't have to live in spiritual pride anymore, like I have something about which to boast. I can actually have humility come and be kind of at the core of my being. And so my relationships with with you begin to look more like how Christ is relating to me. I can lose that, that judgmental spirit that so often nips at my heels, where I look at you and say, well, you're not quite as good as me. But then I remember that when God looked at me, he had to turn away because it was so awful. And then I see how how Christ uh, has redeemed me and I can begin to rejoice in a lifestyle that honors Christ. Not in a lifestyle that says, oh good, now I get to go sin more so that I can make God look great. Embracing death might sound a bit macabre, but actually it sets us free. Thirdly, what do we do now? Verse 4 says, we live in him. We were buried therefore with him in the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So kind of going back to to the baptism picture, you know, you've been buried with Christ. Now you're being raised with Christ. And Paul's using that terminology in a way. He says, okay, now we've come up and, and we're new creatures in Christ. But guess what? You don't then just stand there on the banks of the river or next to the the water. What do you do? You go and you live your life. You go and you follow Jesus as one of his disciples. You live a new life. And Paul says we do this because we might walk in newness of life. And I believe there he has a twofold meaning. Let's talk about those for just a second. The first one is this, that believers are dead and alive that they're both true at the same time. So if you, if you look at Galatians 2.20 for just a minute, which I think is a Bible verse, if you haven't memorized this Bible verse, you ought to memorize it. it. It's a great verse to help you remember who you are in Christ. Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Now stop there for just a minute with me. There, there are two I's in this verse. The I, the old me identified by sin. So the first time, in the first half of the verse, Paul's saying that, that sinner, that condemned one, right? Okay, the, the person who's enslaved to sin, that person has been crucified with Christ and it's no longer the sinner, the condemned, the slave who lives. That person has been wiped out. He's gone. Why? Because Christ lives in me. I have that new life in him. So what, what happens? What do we do? Well, now the life that I live. Okay, Now the new me identified in Jesus is now alive. So now it's a different I. The life I now live in the flesh, I, the new me, lives by what? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I can't tell you how many times a day I have to come back to this verse and remind myself, that I'm not identified by sin anymore, but I'm identified by a new life in Christ. And the way that works itself out, again, is not saying, oh, I'm gonna go out and sin a whole bunch so God can be magnanimous, but rather I live by faith. I trust that that's true and that God is going to change me from the inside out. Alive in Christ, walking in newness of life. Jeremy put it this way uh, in his sermon last week. I went back and and, and listened to it again and and typed it out. He said, grace is the operating or becomes the operating principle of my life. Grace rules and reigns. It brings me under its power. So the application of of verse 4 is not just that we're both dead and alive, but it's also understanding that grace is now the operating principle, and it's learning to walk in that newness of life. It's learning to, to, to take on that way of thinking and to approach life in that manner. Now, there are a couple things uh, that it is and it isn't. First of all, it's not instant perfection, right, uh, which can lead to legalism, can lead to, to spiritual pride. It, it, you don't put your faith in Christ and, and never sin again. Uh, you still wrestle with sin, and we're going to actually come to that in chapter 7 of Romans. So if you have that question this morning, hang on to it for about four months, and we'll get to it. Um. Or come talk to me after the service, and we can jump ahead a little bit. But some Christians are like, hey, now we've got to be perfect, and you have to obey all the rules, and, and they try to obey all the rules. They try to put all that on you, and it all it creates is a bunch of pain and sorrow and divisiveness within the church and, and a lot of uh, angst among believers because it's not the proper reaction. This is not about perfection. It's not about, it's not about spiritual pride. I had an email from a buddy of mine this week, uh, and, he, and he wrote this. Just, this is just part of what he wrote. An answer to prayer happened this morning. I unexpectedly was invited to sit with three men at a table, at, and he names the bread company where they were, were sitting. There's a community where uh, he is, he's a pastor. He says, each of these men have kids the same ages as my youngest and the same school. To my knowledge, none of these men are Christians. It was an answer to prayer because for about three or four months, I've been hanging out at the same bread company in the mornings, a couple of mornings a week, hoping for this kind of opportunity. Midway through the conversation, I began to feel inadequate. I actually had the thought, Tom Ricks would handle this so much better than I would. I wish Tom were here. Y'all didn't know how good you had it. (laughs) I emailed him back and I said, brother, don't ever utter those words again. I can't take that kind of temptation. I'm too quick to pride. It's not perfection. It's embracing the perfection that Christ has given us. Along those lines, it's also very much a process. It is a a growth. It is just as you plant, you know, some of us are planting now, and the next month we'll be planting our gardens, Cindy's gonna plant a lot of flowers around our front door and our back door, and it's gonna look beautiful a few months after that. But all that's a process. They've got to they've got to be watered and fed and cultivated so that they can bloom. And in the same way, our growth and faith. It is very much that process. Again, if you were here last week, you remember that Jeremy said at the beginning of, uh, of Paul's journey with Christ, he identified himself as a sinner, but at the end of his life, he said, I'm the worst sinner that's ever walked on the planet. Now, I, I can promise you that Paul was not sinning more at the end of his life than he was at that moment, but his realization of his sin and his need for a Savior had grown over the years so that he had come to appreciate more and more the grace in which he stood. Growth in faith is very much a process. And sin as an identity is gone, but there are lingering effects. If you've read uh, any, any stories from World War II or other stories where soldiers are, are coming back from the battlefield, maybe you've read about the, the post-traumatic syndrome disorder where even though they've been set free, a prisoner of war has been set free th- uh, from the prisoner of war camp and they're back at home and they're safe and they're not experiencing uh, you know the torture and all the things that happened to them as a POW, something can set that off and they can be right back there emotionally speaking. A book I read recently talked about a, uh, an ex World War II uh, POW from a Japanese prisoner of war camp who somebody set a bowl of rice in front of him in a public restaurant and he absolutely went ballistic because he felt like he was right back there in the POW camp. Friends, there are going to be moments when you feel like th- that sin as an identity is still very much a part of who you are. We need to understand, as brothers and sisters in Christ, the growth process. And the lingering effects, we need to patiently and graciously walk alongside one another because it really is, in a sense, it's learning to walk again. (laughs) It's learning to walk in a a different manner. It's learning to to do something that you've kind of sort of done, but now you've got to do it in a radically uh, new and different way. It's unlearning some things, and it's learning some things. I was reading this week uh, about a young lady named Tiffany Knight, uh, and uh, she was never going to walk because of, of a brain disorder she had. Uh, and there's a new uh, deal that neurosurgeons are doing, and I can't pronounce all the words, but I'll read the part of the quote that I understand. Um, and, and it says this, For patients with some uh, types of movement disorders, a deep brain stimulation procedure can be a godsend. Three months ago, Tiffany Knight could barely walk down a hallway. A movement disorder called something confined her to a wheelchair for, more, for most of her teen years. It was frustrating and crippling. It was just hell, she says. I was really, really depressed about it. I was embarrassed. I wasn't able to drive and go places. But today, Knight has a life. She walks so fast her grandmother can barely keep up. A procedure called deep brain stimulation, or DBS, is what helped her. Now Knight's looking forward to starting her new life. I feel like I actually have a future now. Before I didn't, she says, I thought I was going to have to depend upon people the rest of my life. Now she can be as independent as she wants. The story doesn't really do justice to what the gospel does, but Tiffany Knight is learning to walk all over again. And for many of us who have been, who have been uh, living with the guilt and the shame and the pain of our sin, and we come to Christ, one of the things that we need to understand is that not only do we rejoice in dying with Christ, but we also rejoice in living with Him, and we're now learning again to walk. So what do we do? How do we move forward? Well, as Paul says, we reject the absurd notion that grace in Christ Jesus is a freedom to sin. It just is foolish, and it makes no sense. But we also joyfully embrace our death and our new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin together as individuals and as a community of believers to learn to walk in newness of life. Let's pray.